Our reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verse, sorry, Little Prince 30 up to 5, chapter 16. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Good morning. Thank you, Sally, for sharing the reading with us this morning found this quotation, blessed are the cheesemakers, which I think somebody must be taking it from this verse, this chapter. So I thought maybe we needed to consider the process of cheesemaking this morning. But on further study, I've actually found out that it was a mishearing from the film The Life of Brian, when some people in the crowd didn't quite catch what Jesus was saying. And I can't find any references to cheesemaking in the Bible, so I think we'll just ignore that and actually listen to what the Bible's actually saying to us this morning. Let's focus on what God has to say to us. Let's not mishear his word like those characters, but listen to what he's really saying. So, now hopefully I've got your attention. We can look at the opening of the sermon on the mount, the Beatitudes. We looked at this, the Sermon on the Mount in our house group 
um, and I asked Steve to lead a session, and he chose the Sermon on the Mount, which is actually a huge thing. So it went on for several weeks, which was great because we got so much out of it. And I started doing some reading and preparing for this morning. And I found so much just in the first sentence, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that I've decided just to focus on that one sentence this morning. I thought I might get through it all, but we're not. But first of all, I thought I'd just give us a bit of context to the passage. As we heard in the reading, Jesus had been teaching in the synagogues throughout Galilee, and he'd been healing the sick. He then went up the mountain with his disciples and he taught them. They drew away from their work and the needs they faced to have a time of peace, to learn and to hear God's word like we are this morning. It's interesting that the word disciple wasn't necessarily a reference to the 12 apostles, but refers to anyone who was a follower and learner at that time. They were just like us. They weren't an elite group. They were just people seeking God. John Stott describes the first beatitude, the beatitudes rather, as Christ's own specification of what every Christian ought to be. These verses include eight blessings, which are for every Christian. So I hope we're blessed this morning. It's important for us as modern-day disciples to take time out with God, seek his will, and learn from his word. So let's look at this first beatitude from chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's look at one word, the word blessed, first of all, because it's used many times in this passage. Each beatitude starts with it. And it can be translated in several ways. It can simply mean to be happy. Are we happy this morning? I hope we are. The Greek word for blessed is makarios, and it means to be happy in a way which doesn't depend on our circumstances. Isn't that wonderful that we can be happy whatever we're going through? The blessed are those who belong to God, and they can experience and know the same happiness and contentment as him not dependent on circumstances or emotional state. Now, it's natural, isn't it, to have feelings of happiness and sadness in life? We respond to our circumstances we face. We're only human. Of course we do. And we know that Jesus experienced that as well as a fully human person. But the wonderful thing is that in all those feelings, in whatever we face, it's possible to have inner contentment through knowing Jesus. It's not going to mean we're jumping for joy all the time, but we can have a sense of peace in difficult situations because we know God's with us and he has a plan of salvation for each one of us. 
I liked that Debbie shared this morning something of her testimony of coming to faith because I've included a bit of my testimony this morning as well. When I was 12 years old, I became a Christian. And it was while I was having a bit of a difficult time at school. And as a child, I thought I had to be a really good and really clever person to be a Christian. I thought Christians were, you know, really amazing and perfect. And I wasn't. And I knew I wasn't. I was diagnosed when I was 10 with having some dyslexia. And I'd struggled throughout my primary school years because of that. And I didn't know what the problem was. And when I was 11, I changed schools and we moved house. And all that was quite hard because I lost my friends and I struggled a bit at school. And some of the girls weren't very nice to me at all. Then on the night I was converted in the summer of that year, I don't know the exact date like Debbie, I just know it was about June or July that year. It was because I realized that Jesus loved me and he accepted me just as I was. And I remember going to bed that night with the most amazing feeling of happiness. And I believe I experienced the contentment of knowing Jesus for the first time. And I now realize that it was the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven entering into my life, which is a spiritual experience. And it's an experience we can all have as Christians. God breaks into our lives when we're going through difficult things. And he blesses us with a certain hope of his kingdom. So the next thing I want to look at is being poor in spirit. Because as the verse says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's actually an Old Testament expression. God's people were referred to as the poor of the Lord. And that was down to their extreme economic distress, which was due to their oppression. And the Hebrew word for poor is to be lowly or humble. So the poor in spirit aren't full of their own importance, but they're those who are struggling. We know that Jesus preached to the poor. He went to the ordinary people, and he went to the sick, who were the people that the Pharisees were avoiding, and they shunned them because they might spiritually contaminate them. But Jesus was there. He was associating with them. And his entire ministry was focused on them. So these words, poor in spirit, are a pledge of the kingdom of heaven to those who have nothing to offer but are weak and vulnerable. In Matthew 9, verse 11 to 12, the Pharisees asked Jesus, sorry, they asked the disciples, why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus hears them, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Proverbs 16 verse 19 says, It's better to be of lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, Richard lent me a few books for this morning, um, and one of them was by Rob Warner on his book, The Sermon on the Mount. And he gives a tongue-in-cheek collection of the Beatitudes. He writes, Blessed are the wealthy, because theirs is the Dow Jones Index. Blessed are those who enjoy a good party, for they will drown their sorrows. Blessed are the assertive, for they will get to the top of their career. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after chemical stimulation, for designer drugs are more widely available with every passing year. Blessed are the ruthless, because no one will get in their way. Blessed are the cold of heart, for they won't get hurt when relationships break down. Blessed are those who are involved in the arms trade, for theirs are the best deals in developing nations. Blessed are the directors of privatised utilities, for theirs are the fat cat bonuses. D.A. Carson writes that poverty of spirit is a personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's the conscious confession of unworth before God. It is our confession of our need for God. It's the deepest repentance. To be poor in spirit, we need to empty ourselves of our pride and allow God to fill us. Calvin wrote, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So to come to God, we have to be poor in spirit. We have to accept our own spiritual poverty and rely on him. Next thing I want us to look at is the kingdom of heaven. Because the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven... It's what other writers refer to as the kingdom of God. We know that Matthew was a Jewish writer, so he held God in high esteem, and he felt his name was too holy to be mentioned. He revered God. And so should we also, as we rely on him each day to feed us spiritually and physically. We can't do anything in our own strength, can we? Our strength comes from God. D.A. Carson writes that the kingdom of heaven is the exercise of God's sovereignty, which bears directly on his saving purpose. And John Stott comments that Jesus contradicts all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come waging war. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans. 
he wasn't the sort of Messiah the Jews were expecting. Instead, he brought about a kingdom of peace. And if we belong to his kingdom, we will fully experience it when Jesus returns. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So by following God's will in our lives, we can receive the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Rob Warner describes it as an upside-down kingdom. He writes that the customs and priorities of this world are questioned, overthrown, and even reversed by the higher calling of the kingdom of heaven. So being blessed, being happy, doesn't depend on worldly physical things, but on belonging to God's kingdom which is there for the poor in spirit, there for the marginalized and the sick who Jesus came to. It's there for the people Christians in churches may not always be comfortable with. Robert Jump's not here this morning, but he posted on Facebook a while ago a link to something the Bishop of Burnley said at the New Wine Conference. That's Philip North. I couldn't remember if it was Robert Jump or Peter Bill who had posted it because they post very similar things. So I had to look through um, all the um, information because I just remembered seeing it. But Philip North suggested that the Church of England is almost entirely focused on the needs and aspirations of the wealthy and that the Church's preoccupation with church growth was actually at the expense of ministry among the poor. He said, every effective renewal movement in the whole history of the church has begun not with the richest and most influential, but with the poor and marginalized. And he said that areas characterized by social deprivation desperately need a gospel of hope. And yet, what are we doing? We're withdrawing, we're underinvesting. What kind of church is it that turns its back on the dispossessed or offers them only the crumbs from the tables of the rich? He said, unless we start with the poor, the gospel we proclaim is a sham and an empty hypocrisy. It's pretty challenging stuff. And we might be sitting here thinking, how on earth does that apply to us in our little village in Rosendale? And maybe we need to find out what the issues are in the area and see how we can get involved. Maybe we should be praying more for those who aren't in need and praying for those who are poor in spirit, possibly not because they're economically poor but just because they're having a hard time no one's immune from suffering and we should be spending time with those who are going through hardships could our church be open more often for prayer for counselling 
and support for those in need. I always find it interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the financial security of Jesus and his disciples. We don't actually know how Jesus' ministry was funded. But we know and we learn that it was based on his self-sacrifice to those in need. He taught the 5,000 and he provided for both their spiritual and physical needs by feeding them. And that should also be the church's main ministry and focus. Psalm 34 verse 18 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So to enter into this first beatitude, I think we need to rid ourselves of pride in our own achievements, in our own church, but instead solely rely on God. Jesus shares that image in John chapter 15 of the vine and his followers as the branches who rely on him. We can't bear any fruit, can we, without him? As verse 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So this morning, to achieve anything of spiritual significance, we need to be depending solely on God. And we ourselves need to become poor in spirit. And our challenge is to seek God's will in our lives and in the church through prayer, through serving others, and becoming poor in spirit as we rely on him. Now I was going to close there after I prepared this sermon this morning. And before I came out, I... um, thought I'll just have a quick Bible reading, um, help myself a bit this morning, um, reassure myself that I might be giving you the right message. And it really reassured me. Um, I opened these Voice of Hope notes we often have at the back of church. I can recommend them. Dr. Micah Jazz um, writes for them, and he writes some interesting things. So I'd just like to share that reading I read this morning. It quotes, first of all, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. The call from God that grabs our attention is followed by an invitation to drink and to eat. Yet the purchase is to be made by those without any money. In our commercial world, this sounds impossible. But it's clear that God wants to make this provision for everyone who has need. I spoke yesterday of the challenging start to my new year, with unwelcome waters flowing freely inside rather than outside the house, as well as the assault upon my daughter. You can imagine there were two very different responses. A frustration tinged with a measure of panic as I worked out how to stem the waters. Concern, heartache, 
and anger provoked on hearing of my daughter's dilemma. I was stretched out of shape by emotions that were not especially holy. If ever there was a beggar in need of sustenance, it was me. Now my historic reaction would have been to rant on and on, outworking inner emotions of frustration, anger, and no doubt fear. However, responding to God's, hey, I was able to turn to prayer and center myself on God. As I talked with God, now the situation went away, but I was able to discover the grace and ability to manage myself and be what God needed me to be too. In becoming God-centered, I also became others-centered and far less ego-centered. It was calming and empowered us all to cope with the circumstances we found ourselves in. God has made provision for us, no matter what our circumstances. And what I've described is tiny in comparison to what many of you face. Yet it is not an issue of scale, but rather one of perspective. Will I choose to live out my own perspective, or choose to yield to God's? Let's just close in prayer. The prayer from this Bible study says, Gracious God, thank you that you are my source of help, healing and hope. Nourish my soul again on your mercy and kindness to me, through Christ Jesus. Amen.